0: You are listening to Sermon Audio from College Creek Church in Annapolis, Maryland. For more information on this local body of believers, visit us online at collegecreekchurch.org or in person every Sunday at 11 a.m. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all. Pastor Isaac just prayed for the effects of winter, and I can tell you that shoveling in 60 does not go together. My back is killing me. I think what I'll do this morning is I'll read the passage first. Uh, It's uh, two stories that we're going to read today from the Gospel of Luke, and then that will uh, give me a a little bit of flexibility in moving around my sermon, if that's okay with you. So the reading today begins um, in Mark chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible for any reason, there's uh, plenty of them over on the table there. And the reading is on page 931, okay? I'll be picking up in verse 35, I believe, of four. Yeah, 35, and then I'll read through 520. On that day, when evening had come, he said, that's Jesus, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And they were filled with great fear, and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? And they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain, for he had... For he was saying to them, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out to the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and was drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. This is the word of God. Now, there's a lot here, (laughs) and there's a tremendous amount of nuances uh, in these two stories. There's a lot of great stuff, and uh, anytime that you listen to this sermon, you're going to hear a lot of great things, and I, I encourage you, you know, there's accessible commentaries. You can go on YouTube, hear a lot of sermons. And you'll get a lot of the nuances. I don't mean to disappoint you, but I'm not going to talk about demon possession or pigs being possessed by demons today. There's a lunch afterwards and Pastor Isaac will be there and you can ask him all you want about demon possession and the herd of pigs. This past week, I was with uh, doing my work uh, and I was on a farm with a, a Christian man. I had a great time with him. I really enjoyed my time together, and we were talking about family and uh, things of the faith. And towards the end, uh, he made the comments about, you know, what I tell people and what I want to get across to my kids is that the main is I want them to know that the main reason that Jesus came was to take away our sins. And he sort of expanded on that and talked about how Jesus took sin onto Himself and became really the sin bearer of the world. And as a result. Uh, he took uh, the punishment that we all deserved. And that's a wonderful statement, and I have absolutely no problem with it. But whenever, but I guess it's my teaching background when he said the main thing, I kind of went, and I wanted to talk further about it, but I restrained myself and didn't get into uh, any kind of a theological discussion. But I guess as I get older and I find on a day-to-day basis That Jesus dying for my sin just simply isn't enough for me to make it through the day. I'm convinced, and I know by reading the scriptures and in my relationship with God, that there's so much more. And I want to highlight the incompleteness of when we just simply focus on Jesus forgave me for all my sins. First thing, I want to go on the record. It is a fabulous thing that Jesus forgives us for all our sins. And we as a church 100% adhere to the fact that our redemption comes through Jesus Christ. So I have no quarrel with that. But I want to begin to subtly understand that our redemption is the beginning of Christ's teaching in our lives that moves us from who we are before we became Christians to who God intends for us to be forever and ever, amen. We cannot stay in Egypt. Okay, we have to move out of Egypt and move into the promised land. Likewise, if all that we focus on in our lives is the forgiveness of our sins, it's not going to help us when storms come our way. Okay, there's a deep piece about that. Jesus says in Matthew 20, 28, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's our redemption. That's what he's talking about Amen. That's a great thing. But I would also add other passages like John 10, 10, where Jesus is talking about the devil coming in uh, to snatch his sheep. He says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Or how about 1 John 3, 8, where the apostle is reflecting in the later part of his life, the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's taking care of our enemy. We have an enemy uh, that's pursuing us, and again, you know, to this this the, this uh, sense of redemption and getting rid of our enemies and living in a, a, a different kind of life is what we see in the Old Testament. When the uh, when Israel left Egypt, uh, God made sure to take care of their enemy, the Egyptians, and as the enemy pursued Egypt, um, um, pursued Israel as they were fleeing Egypt they drowned in the Red Sea, and the enemy, the enemies of Israel were taken care of for good. They were placed behind them. That allowed Israel to focus forward in their journey rather than always looking back over their shoulder. And my concern, again, is when we focus so much on our sins, we're always looking back over our shoulder. I don't know about you, but for so long, I, I never felt the deep security that I was totally forgiven, even though I was totally forgiven. Because my sins are repetitive, just like yours are. And so how much of the grace of God is going to sort of wear thin in my life? And how much of a little bit of chastising is always there uh, because of the way that I'm, I'm failing God in how I live my life? And so I want very much so to convey to you the importance of us understanding how God works in our lives personally, by applying the, his teachings in scripture to our lives. And he meshes the two, our experiences in life with his teachings in life. And the more in tune we are with him, the more we're going to grow in our confidence that God is in work at work in our lives, particularly in difficult times when we really need him. Okay? So that's where I'm going today uh, uh, with, uh, with the message. I want to highlight that by uh, referencing two two authors that's had somewhat of an impact as I think about these things. The first one is a guy named Don Mostrom, who writes um, in his book, uh, it's called An Intimacy with God. He says, the gospel is a message of hope and carries with it the expectation of power to transform our everyday life. But the expectation and realization are often far apart so much so that many believers in Christ become skeptical about the practical possibilities of their faith. Do you hear that? The expectation, our expectation, and the realization of our everyday lives oftentimes fall apart. Remember how excited you were when you first became a Christian? You were so full of hope, so full of anticipating things are going to change. I'm going to change. Everything's going to change. And over a slow period of time, it just seems like nothing much has changed. You're still stuck in a lot of the ruts that you were, and uh, that sense of hope that you had and that excitement slowly begins to erode. And that's what happens to many Christians. But that doesn't have to happen. You see, there's a gap in our lives between what we believe and how we often behave. And when we begin to recognize that gap and we work to close that gap with God, then slowly but surely we'll gain in that confidence and we'll start living that life that Jesus says is an abundant life for us. And you and I are no different than the New Testament disciples who were also struggling with the same thing. They had a really great advantage, a really cool seat, so to speak. They were right there with Jesus walking alongside him day after day after day. And they were witnessing all these great things that were happening in their lives. But when the test came in their own lives, almost consistently they fail now to their credit they report their failures in the gospel messages and they report those failures there for you and I to see and to to grow from that but it's important that we have this understanding that um, these experiences uh, are are there uh, so that we can so that we can grow all right second person I want to talk about uh, Pastor Dane Ortland. he wrote a fantastic little book called How Does God Change Us? And in it, he does a very careful job of laying out our struggles with this, what I'll call the Jesus gap. That's not his words, that's what I'll, I'll call it, and how God works in our lives. So listen to what he says. Christian growth is bringing what you do and say and even feel into line with what, in fact, you already are. Again, do you see the gap there? Christian growth is bringing what you do and say and even feel into line with what in fact you already are okay god has done something wonderful for us and uh that wonderment that wonderful thing is for us but if we never grow into that wonderful thing we never experience life the way that god wants us to experience life and i and pastor isaac and everyone else in this church we just don't want that for you i want you to live a great life the life that god intends uh, for us to live ortland says that the main reason for our failure is that we have a domesticated view of jesus we have a small view of jesus the problem with us is not our problems the problem with us is that we have a small savior Jesus is not larger than our problems, and therefore, we don't trust that he can actually solve our problems, so we don't think to turn to him as first things when we have a problem. Instead, we engage our own wisdom and our own abilities to try and resolve the problems. He writes, the temptation for many of us is to assume we pretty much know what Jesus is like. We've been saved by him. We spent time in the Bible over the years. We've read some books about him. We've told a few stories, uh, we've told a few others about him, and yet, if we're honest, we still find our lives riddled with failure and worry and dysfunction and emptiness. I love Tim Keller. If you listen to him enough, you, you hear a story that he tells quite often when he was a young pastor in, in about his 20s. He was counseling a young teenage girl. She was about 14 years old, and she was quite morose, and she was down and out, and you know just felt like life was, was miserable like it oftentimes is as teenagers. <laughs> and he was talking to her about the wonderful things that Christ has done for her. He's trying to encourage her in the faith. You know, Jesus has died for your sins. You know, uh, uh, you've been adopted into the family of God. You have the Holy Spirit with you. you you're, you're part of the family of God right now. And he's told her all these wonderful things. And she looked at him looked at him and said, yeah, those are all great, wonderful things. But what good is that if you don't have any dates? Many of us live in that particular fashion. You know, we just, we we got our mind focused on the things that we want to have our minds that we want for ourselves. And this is really quite, quite revealing. Uh, and so today's passage really helps us to begin to untangle what's most important in our lives, what should be important of our lives. And then hopefully we can begin to narrow that gap. And so what I would have liked to have said to that, the, to that gentleman that I spent time with, and actually I struck up a really good friendship, so, uh, I'm planning to see him again in, a, you know, in, in the future. I think that the most important thing that you and I can understand is our union with Jesus Christ. That is the preeminent thing. If I were to say, what is the main thing? I don't know that I would ever say, you know, let me tell you what the main thing is. But if I were to say the main thing is our union with Christ, our union with Christ uh, mandates um, uh, um, makes necessary uh, that our sins be dealt with In other words, we can't have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ until our sins are dealt with so it encompasses that uh, that that problem that you and I face uh and so I think that that's important okay let's move into the to the teaching so far. The Gospel of Mark, uh, just to, to give you a very quick overview, uh, is set up in two large chunks. The first the first chunk is in chapters 1 through 8, and during chapters 1 through 8, the Gospel writer Mark is showing you time and time again pictures of Jesus and how great Jesus is, how marvelous Jesus is, his authority over uh, disease, uh, his authority over uh, teachings, uh, and um, uh, demon exercises, exorcisms, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, what we see is a marvelous picture of Jesus and how great he is. And all that is leading up to chapter eight, where Jesus takes uh, his disciples away and he brings them to a place, uh, where they have solitude. And in that place, he says to them, Who are people? Who do people say that I am? And they give a couple answers. And then he turns to them and he says, Well, who do you say I am? So you and I essentially are to place ourselves in that particular moment in the gospel. That's what Mark is looking to do. He's showing you pictures of Jesus along the way to lead you up to that great question, which you yourself must be confronted with. Who do you say that I am? Your answer to that question ought to determine how you live our, how you live your life. It should have a solid impact on how you live. Your life, but again, what I hope that I've uh, done in the beginning here is show you that we do not consistently live with that within that principle. In principle, we believe that Jesus is our Savior, but in practice, we trust probably more in ourselves than we ought to do. And so, again, we want to close that gap as we get to Mark's uh, uh, chapters uh, three through five. Our stories were in chapters four and five. We begin to see Jesus doing a couple things. One, he's beginning to narrow his focus down on a group of guys whom he calls apostles, uh, these 12 men whom he has chosen, and he is going to prepare them to send them out to preach the gospel. If you remember earlier in chapter one, Jesus said to the disciples on one occasion when they were looking for him, let's go to another town so that I can preach the gospel because that's why I came out. And his intention is to prepare his disciples, his followers in the same fashion so that they too can go out. We're his followers. So Jesus is in the process of shaping you and I so that we can be effective witnesses to go out and to preach the gospel to other people. That is so much a part of what God is doing after he saves us. Look, God is anticipating as much as you are life eternal just living in a, in a, in a great world, in a great relationship where death and sin and disease and all the things that we struggle with are no longer a problem. That's the kingdom that is to come. That's a great picture. That's something that we all should, you know, look forward to with great anticipation. So why are we still here fumbling around and struggling? Because part of his project is to use us in order to bring other people along into that grand vision. That's how I came into a a relationship with Jesus Christ. I I watched my dad. I saw a change in him, and, and he became, a sense, an effective witness in my life by my seeing the change in him. And I wanted what he had when the storms came into my life. And many of you, I'm sure, are much the same way. Someone was integral into leading you into a special relationship with Jesus Christ. And now it co- and now it falls on us to become those kinds of people as well. Well, we have to be shaped and prepared in order to do that. And that's what God is doing in the meantime uh, in our particular lives. The second thing that we see in this chapter, chapters four or five, the two stories I read to you have a couple with two other stories right after it. Um, the healing of Jairus' daughter, if you're familiar with that passage, and, uh, and also the healing of a, a woman who had a hemorrhage. Uh, issue. These four stories are really confrontations on the part of Jesus with evil. Evil is a direct enemy of God. Satan himself is, God, is Jesus's arch enemy, God's arch enemy. And in these passages, Jesus is taking Satan on in those four particular areas where he uses fear in our lives in order to paralyze us and to diminish our relationship with the Lord Jesus. Satan uses things in our lives to distract us and to knock us off course. And Jesus firmly establishes his authority over Satan in those four major episodes to strongly uh, implant in the minds of his apostles that he has authority over everything that the culture says evil has power over. So any culture that talks about when evil happens or when bad things happens in the The, uh, what we call the duality between good and evil, yin and yang, those kinds of things. Jesus shows him superior to yin. If he's the yin, then this is the yang. He shows himself superior in this way. It's not even close. It's not like he even has a sparring partner. Boom, it's just knockout. Boom, knockout. Boom, knockout. Boom, knockout. With little words, he doesn't do much. In fact, the woman who's hemorrhaging, he doesn't even, he didn't even know what happened. He just healed her because she had faith. This has an imprint on the lives of the disciples. And that's what we want to to look at here. All right. So I'm going to look at it in three different uh, pieces here. I'll look at the boys in the boat. It's a movie that's out right now. I'm not going to get into metaphors about that, but, you know, we do have these guys in the boat and they are acting more like boys than men. Uh, So we'll talk about the boys in the boat. Uh, Then with the pig story the demoniac story. Uh, We'll talk about how Jesus changes everything, which is the title of our series. And then lastly, we'll talk about how maybe we, in fact, grow. All right, so the boys in the boat. I think I've uh, prepared you to understand that Jesus uh, is really beginning to, to focus his attention on these guys and he's going to begin to prepare them in order in order to go out. What we haven't been able to do is really go backwards into Mark's gospel and look at the, the, the teaching that we had just prior to those guys getting into the boat. Uh, I also want to add that uh, both uh, Matthew and Luke also have this story of the calming of the storm in their gospels as well. In Matthew's gospel, just prior to them getting into the boat, if you remember, Jesus is having one of those days where he's healing everybody, and there's a tremendous amount of excitement, a huge buzz about what's going on. And at the end of the day, a group of guys come up to Jesus and say, I want to follow you. You know, I'm I'm all in, I'm yours. And Jesus says, you know, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to, to lay his head. And that takes care of some of those guys. And another say, huh? ah, Jesus, I'm all in, you know, forget those guys. I'm with you. I'm all for you. Uh, I just want to go home and take care of my folks. And as soon as, uh, you know, I get them into a home or, and, you know, get them in the ground or whatever, then I'll, then I'll be, I'll be right back. But I'm thinking with you. I'm there with you. Do you need, you know, you need help, support, let me know, that kind of thing. And Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. And that takes care of those guys. Meanwhile, we have the 12 disciples and those 12 disciples they stick to Jesus like glue. And I'm sure that as those guys watch these other guys come with full excitement and then wither away, they probably got into that boat thinking, mm, we're the J- we're the varsity team here. Those guys, Jesus, they're not with you, but we're going to be with you. And I was trying to think of a good analogy for this that I'd like to, to bring up to you. Um, and it's an event that took place while I was coaching. I sort of wrestled with whether I should bring up this Image to you, because once i once I say it, it, it might become a part of our church uh, culture uh, one uh, when when I was coaching uh, when I started coaching at a little school up in in uh, Long Island, we didn't have a really a good team, and over a process of about five years, we became really good, and we moved from being kind of the laughing stock to all of a sudden becoming um pretty well known and pretty popular, et cetera, et cetera. Well, uh, I think a little bit of that got to some of the guys on our team because uh, the one year after we had our most success, that next year, we became so successful that we started to, uh, people that were good wanted to all of a sudden play play us, who never wanted to play us before. And so we had a, an opening game with a, with a really, really uh, well-known team, very popular team, and uh, we did not play very well. It was a cold day. It was like a March, April day. It was cold. The other team was really good, and our guys were were a little too cocky, and we got beat. Um, you know, we didn't get killed, but but we got killed. They physically beat us, and it wasn't even close. I think it was like six to two or something like that. Um, but but we got beat pretty badly. So after the game, uh, as the head coach, I was assistant coach at that time. He and I uh, were talking to the team. Mostly, he was talking to the team, and it wasn't really a great conversation. Uh, he was very disappointed in the team. Uh, and let them know how disappointed he was. We got onto the bus. Now, <clears throat> we had a boy on our team whose dad was a distributor. And he distributed um, Snapple iced tea. If you know Snapple iced tea, it was, the, it was the new thing kind of at that time. And it was just awesome. So after every single game, we always had an ice chest of Snapple drinks for the team. Win or lose, Snapple, the Snapple was there. Well, on this one particular occasion, you know, when you when you get kind of a tongue lashing, you're not playing bad, you sort of kind of quietly, you know, get dismissed. But you're you're quietly wondering where's the snapple, you know? <laughs> so the snapple got put onto the back of the bus. No snapple, kind of a thing. The snapple got put on the back of the bus, and sure enough, the the older guys were sitting in the back of the bus, and then they decide to distribute the snapple. Uh, and I guess at some point it got to the got to the place where no, you don't get that snapple. That's for the seniors and this, that, and the other. I, I don't. I wasn't really paying attention, but it became almost like a pecking order, and the guys that were in charge were pretty aggressive about how the snapple was going to get passed out in this particular situation. Well, you can imagine that set my coach, the coach, off uh, at that point, point. and he. You know, in the bus, you look in the mirror and you can see everybody behind you. <laughs> so he's looking in the mirror and he's letting them all have it Um, for, you know, essentially, had you put this much effort into playing this team that we played today, it might have been a lot different than the way that you're acting towards the Snapple. And he had a hat on, he took his hat and he sort of like that half throw it, half let it go into the, the front of the bus. And he goes, you Snapple superstars. <laughs> And I'll never forget that phrase. In fact, the whole team didn't forget the phrase. As you can imagine, if you're a parent and you say something on some occasion, it becomes a joke later on. The Snapple superstars. Had these guys played the way that they should have played in the moment, the outcome could have been a lot different. And if they had showed the same kind of enthusiasm for the things of the team rather than the things that they personally wanted, like the Snapple, it would have been a very different story. And I thought about these guys as they got into the boat. And I'm sure that as they pass these disciples that have fallen away from Jesus, and they themselves are thinking about how special they are, I can just imagine how Jesus was thinking as they got into the boat. Here we go. Here comes a life lesson. Jesus falls asleep. Huge storm comes up on the horizon, and these guys freak out. Now, these are not just ordinary guys. These are fishermen. So these are skilled men who are used to being out on the uh, on the sea at night fishing, and they are at a place where they feel like their lives are in grave danger to the point where they're going to die. And then at that point, someone thinks to wake up Jesus, who is asleep in the boat, in the back of the uh, of the boat in the stern. I'd like to remind us what these guys knew before they even got into the boat. Here's some of the things that they had seen. They'd seen the cleansing of a leper. They'd seen a centurion's servant who was healed. They'd seen a demon cast out. They'd seen a paralytic walk. They'd seen a man with a withered hand be restored. They'd seen several unclean spirits and and every disease healed. They had heard fabulous preaching and teaching. They'd heard the gospel. They'd heard questions about the Sabbath, fasting, forgiveness of sins. They'd seen, they'd heard teachings on exorcisms. You remember Jesus was Accused of being uh, working in uh, working with uh, the devil himself, they'd heard uh, startling teachings about family. They'd listened to the parables and the creme de la creme, the Sermon on the Mount. All this they had inside of them before they got into that boat, and when that storm came up, none of that seemed to matter to them. They freaked out and they thought they were going to to um, to die. And they turned to Jesus and essentially said, "What's the matter with you? Do you, don't you care that we're going to die? Don't you care?" Now, we can all relate to that. Amen. Amen. Yeah, we can, right? Because what the what the what the boys in the boat were saying essentially was, "Jesus, if you cared, this wouldn't be happening to us. If you if you do care." then stop this essentially. Going back to uh, what Tim Keller had said on one particular occasion, uh, the storm, the storm that these guys were facing was incompatible with their belief in the caring power of Jesus. In other words, they believed that in following Jesus, they would not have to deal with these kinds of things in their life. That storms would not be an issue now that they have Jesus in their lives. And when we begin to think that troubles come into our life and that they shouldn't be there, we're misunderstanding the intention of Jesus to grow us. In the Sermon on the Mount, at the very end, Jesus gives an illustration of two types of houses that are being built, one on a foundation of sand and one on a foundation of rock. And Jesus says, and I wonder whether he was looking at the disciples at that point, when the winds come, and the rain blows, if the house that's built on the sand, it's going to crumble and fall. And that's exactly what happened to these guys in that boat. The indication is, is that these guys' identity, the spiritual foundation of these 12 disciples at this point in their journey is built on something other than Jesus Christ. That's why when he wakes up and he says, why are you so afraid? Where is your faith? in Luke's gospel, he says that very directly. Where is your faith? He doesn't say you guys don't have faith. He says, where is your faith? Where's all the teachings that I just did? Where's all the healings and everything that I've done, all these wonderful things that we've been a part of these last few weeks or months or however long they were together. Where is all this stuff? Where is your faith? Put it into action right now. Why are you so afraid? Disciples were building a separate identity, which is based on worldly values, and at the same time, Jesus was working in their life to build a separate identity inside them, one that was in his likeness and in his image, which which had nothing to do with the world. I remember that when, uh, you know, just to to give you an example of this from my own particular life, and maybe you can relate to it. I remember uh, several years ago, just before Isaac became a teacher uh, at the Christian school where I was, uh, we uh, moved away uh, to another uh, city. And uh, in moving uh, away, we put our house up for sale, but our house didn't sell and I thought that was incongruent. I thought that was not compatible with what the way I expected, you know, calling and all that kind of stuff to go. And I prayed and I prayed and I prayed for our house to get sold at a profit. <laughs> and it didn't. It never got sold. Well, two years later, I ended up losing my job up at that place or under under certain circumstances that were immediate. I didn't do anything wrong, but it just, it it was, it happened immediately. And all of a sudden we were out of there. Had I sold, had, had we sold our home two years before, we would not have had a place to come back to. We went backwards financially in, in that move. And there's no way in the world we could have bought a house in Annapolis, probably not even in the Annapolis area. I'm sure you guys can all relate to that. God was answering my prayer. It just was no. Okay, that's not a bad thing. And that's not something for you to worry about. Jesus, if you remember, prayed in the garden of Gethsemane and he asked, Father, if there's any way that this cup can be taken from me, take it from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done is what he prayed. So we can pray those kinds of prayers. We can want storms to not be a part of our life. But the reality is, is that if we do not expect storms in our lives, first of all, we have not much to offer other people whose lives are filled with storms. And two, it's a, not, it's, it's a false reality of the Messiah that we're following. He was a man acquainted with sorrows and with suffering. And if you're going to follow Jesus, as Kathy uh, read previously, if you're going to come after Jesus, you have to pick up your cross and you have to follow him. So the cost of following requires that we have a new premise, uh, which, is, uh, which makes suffering compatibility in our, in our lives. We got to change the way that we're looking at suffering. Okay, second story. Uh, Jesus changes everything. I, I'm not going to get too much into the detail here, but uh, I think it's worth noting that an amazing thing happens in in the life of this town, and they reject it. Rejection is going to become a part of the gospel uh, later on, and it becomes increasingly, if you if you think about it, it becomes increasingly more of a problem, particularly with the disciples. Jesus in just a chapter or two is going to go home to his own hometown and he's going to be rejected. And he's going to go into other towns and he's going to be rejected. Finally, at some point, the disciples say, do you want us to call down fire on these guys? You want us to finally wipe these people out that are rejecting you? Rejection becomes a problem again because their identity is not in Jesus the way that it should be in Jesus. Jesus does say to us, I would rather that you be hot or cold towards me. And these townspeople were definitely cold towards him. They wanted him to go. Jesus had created a real problem in their town financially, particularly for those who had investments in those pigs. And when those pigs went rushing off the hill, so did the profits. Not, not money, profits, kind of a thing. All right? Yeah. So the townspeople don't like Jesus rocking the boat. And a lot of people don't like Jesus rocking their boat and their world. And if they can have Jesus on their terms, great. But anything larger or outside what they can control, that creates a problem. And that really is the root of our own particular problems. We have an intense desire to be independent from God and independent from each other. And anyone who threatens that independency is an enemy of ours. The Bible calls it ungodliness, ungodliness. And it is the root really of all evil. What's, what's horrible is that you can act godly, but underneath you can be ungodly. And that's what we have with the Pharisees. We have people who are fastidious about keeping the law, but underneath they hate Jesus. They want to kill him. And we have to be careful that that ungodliness doesn't take root in our, in, in our own lives. Okay. So what can we do in order to, to, to close the gap? First, recognize that there is a gap in your own life. It will take concentration for you to think rightly about who Jesus is and what he offers you. Do you believe that Jesus loves you? Do you really believe that he loves you, that he thinks the world of you? How can he forgive you all your sins if he doesn't love you? So even if you think that the main thing is Jesus forgiving all of your sins, you then have to believe that he loves you. And that's a great thing. You cannot grow in confidence You cannot uh, live out of the fear of failure without believing that someone is for you. God is for you, and he is working in your life to bring about change and to close that gap. It will also require daily discipline. Listen, you need to read your Bible. You need to know the scriptures. It's God's playbook for how he wants us to live our lives There's no surprises in this world that aren't in the scriptures that he can't deal with and help you through in his word. Um, You also need to pray. Having that relationship with God is, is, uh, is critical. You have the Holy Spirit in your life. You have other people, other Christians in your life, and you can draw on that fellowship. And then how might you close the gap? I would suggest chapters like Romans chapter six Colossians 2 and 3, uh, Galatians chapter 6 are great places to start. If you need that little list, uh, I'm happy to provide that for you uh, afterwards. But think about these things, particularly when uh, the God, the epistle writers are talking about a baptism, and they say that uh, we need to be baptized into the death of Jesus. Dying to the things of this world are our way of agreeing with Jesus that this world does not have what it takes to hold our attention. As we begin to push aside the things of the world and we no longer chase after the things of this world, we are identifying with our Messiah, with our Savior, with the Lord Jesus himself. So to be baptized into his death means that we're putting things away that are not good for us. And as we identify with his resurrection, we're saying that the best is yet to come and I want to be a part of that. So, those passages that talk about his baptism and his death and his baptism and his resurrection are really uh, critical. Isaac does a lot of work in discipleship uh, groups on Sundays, uh, and uh, you can get more of that in in those those times together. Okay. Um, the last thing I would say is, you know… Um, Read the Gospels and concentrate on how big Jesus is, how much he loves you. Discover more and more where your true spiritual foundation is. Is it in money? Is it in power? Is it in sex? Is it in whatever? The answer is yes. (laughs) Yes, it is. And you need to discover where it should be, which is in Jesus. So be truthful with Jesus. Tell him, I got a problem. I want to be great in my office. I wanna be uh, you know, the, the, the most popular person in the neighborhood. Whatever your, whatever your problem is, he already knows. He's just waiting for you to agree with him so that he can deal with it in your life. So be honest with him, make him your only foundation and then you'll grow more and more in that wonderful relationship. Let's pray. Well, our Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to spend time together. Um, I do pray that you would work in the lives of all of us helping to um, create a solid foundation in our lives, a foundation which is built on the rock, Jesus Christ. It's not easy living life in this world. Uh, We need each other, so help us to draw strength from one another. We need you, so help us to become more and more intimate with you through uh, a lively relationship by reading scripture, by praying, by fellowshipping with one another, and with the Holy Spirit especially. Thank you for all the wonderful things you've done for us that we might have a different kind of light, what the scriptures call eternal light. And so we look to you to help us to grow into that. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.